Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Journey Church. Those of you who are with us, those joining us online, yes, it is Family Sunday. We do this once a month on purpose. So good, so meaningful to be together for our children to see us, for us to see our children, to be together and worship together. We are in our second week of our sermon series on the book of Esther. It's an obscure but very meaningful book, uh, highly relevant to where we live today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to get right into it with this question. Have you ever felt in your life, in your journey, or maybe looking out on the world, that God is silent, God is absent? And you ask the question whether for yourself or what you're seeing on the news, God, where are you? Why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? Why don't you help me? Am am I on my own here? Who's in control? Are you in control? Or is this just a world of random chance? In my own journey of life, at certain points, you take a snapshot and you go, these things seem meaningless painful, challenging. What are you up to? Or are you even listening? Are you paying attention? Lord, I've been hurt by leaders that I've served under in the church. I've been hurt by those that I'm called to shepherd. My motives, my character has been maligned at times. Um, I've been shot at from peers that I'm serving alongside. I know what it is to carry the burden of a financially failing church for years on end a church that didn't have any money, a church that was in debt. I know what it's like to to have a declining attendance for years on end, whereas other churches in the community seem to be thriving and growing. And all these things at the same time having a medically fragile child with special needs. And it's during those times that you go, God, I'm working really hard. I'm trying to serve you. This hurts really bad. I'm feeling really terrible about myself. Can you shed a little light on what you're up to? And it seems as if God has a high tolerance for ambiguity where he leaves me in the dark and he is silenced. And I'm tempted, tempted to see the world through the lens of this is just random tragedy, senseless suffering, and meaningless adversity. And I bet you in your own life, You've had those seasons as well. Hurtful things and you're trying to understand. You you understand certain things about God and and that he's present and that he's loving and he's powerful and yet he does nothing. And you are tempted or maybe it's looking at world affairs. You're looking at the the, um, life cycle of the nation and you're looking at things sliding into the abyss and you're saying, God... Where are you? Do you love this country? Do you love this people? We're crying out to you. Why don't you do something? Can you relate to any of that? Ever tempted? Maybe in your head you don't go there, but your heart feels this is true. That this is random tragedy, senseless suffering, and meaningless adversity. You know, Albert Einstein is famous for this quote. God does not play dice with the universe. And that doesn't mean that he was a believer in Yahweh God or his son, Jesus Christ. What it means is that as a physicist and mathematician, he saw the fine-tuned details 
of, of the physical properties of the cosmos. And he says, this was designed by a highly uh, intelligent and intentional designer. But I would riff off this and say this, God does not play dice with history, nor does he play dice with your life or mine. There's something bigger going on. And in the scripture, we have these uh, beautiful uh, ideas, uh, these theological attributes of God, uh, sovereignty and providence. These are not the same thing. They actually are complementary things about God. Many people get them confused, but sovereignty, what sovereignty actually means is authority, power, and ownership. He is the sovereign king of the universe. Providence is when he takes some of that, that authority, power, and ownership, and he gets busy in the details of this world and in the details of our lives. That's called providence. If you pull the word apart, it is provide ants. God gets involved with the details of our lives. How detailed does he get? You know what the scripture says in Proverbs 16, 33. This is going to be really important, really important to the book of Esther. But Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. And you go, what's the lot? Well, the lot is the pure, the pur, P-U-R. It's a Persian word for rolling the dice. And you think the rolling of the dice is random chance, right? But God's word says that the lot is cast in the la- into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the rolling of the dice. God is a God of provide ants. This would be, in my opinion, one of the biggest lessons in the book of Esther, a book where his name is not even mentioned. And the, the actors on the stage never even bow the knee in prayer that we can see in the 10 chapters of Esther. And yet you see that God, while he seems to be absent, while he seems to be silent, he is one step backstage orchestrating the entire play. He is a God who is sovereign and providential, both in world history and in our stories, for history is his story. Well, to do some review, we actually made it through four chapters, so if I could just do a quick flyover. For those of you who missed it, you're not going to get the detail that you got last week. You can go and listen to our podcast, but this is what it says in Esther chapter 1-1. It's in the days of King Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned in Persia over 127 provinces. And we check back in secular history and we find out 486 to 464 BC. This is King Xerxes, the son of Darius the Mede. And we open up in Esther chapter 1 and he is throwing a 180 day party. Bringing in royal officials and dignitaries from, from all around the empire, 127 provinces, and he's showing them, and it's right there in the scripture, the riches, the glory, the splendor, the pomp, and greatness of himself for 180 days. And at the end of this 180 days, he throws a seven-day party open bar. Drink as much or as little as you wish. 
And the scripture says that at the end of seven days, he's got one final thing to show off. And that's the beauty of his royal queen, Vashti. And she ins- he instructs the eunuchs, go get her with her royal crown. And, and he and his wise men, they're sloshed. And Vashti's throwing her own banquet. And she goes, uh, no thank you. I don't think I'm going to show up for that. We don't know exactly why. Only this, that she gets divorced, deposed, and banished. That's the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 opens. Four years have gone by and Ahasuerus remembers Vashti. And he, who knows, gets lonely. We don't know. But his wise man says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you start thinking about her too much, we recommend a royal beauty contest throughout all of the empire. Bring in all the lovely, beautiful young maidens. And guess what, king? You get to try them out one at a time. And that's how Esther chapter 2 opens up. In the middle of Esther chapter 2, we learn about the hero and the heroine. Mordecai and uh, his cousin that is an adopted daughter. Mordecai and Hadassah. And you say, whoa, where's Hadassah? Well, that's her Hebrew name. And there's a reason why we don't refer to her by her Hebrew name. Because she's actually hiding her Hebrew or Jewish ethnicity. And it says in Esther 2.7 that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She is taken. She is taken and, and she wins favor again and again and again. And so we have here Mordecai and Hadassah or Esther. Um, they could have been back in Judah because of the decree of King Cyrus. But they've chosen instead to stay and assimilate even hiding their identity. So that's chapter 2. It says in chapter 2, verse 17, during the royal uh, beauty pageant, after one year, a whole year, 12 months of being beautified, Esther goes in for a night with the king, and it says here in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And as we read the end of chapter 2, it would seem to be, we can't prove this for sure, but several artifacts throughout the text make it look like Mordecai somehow now has a government job at the entrance of the palace. And he wants this so he can stay in contact with his adopted daughter. Though keeping their relationship, their family connection secret. That is taking place. And it says here at the beginning of chapter 3, this is where we meet the villain. The villain, Haman. He is the new prime minister of all of Persia. And the king, King Ahasuerus, makes a law, a royal edict, that when you are in the presence of the prime minister, Haman, You are to bow to him. Now, as we read the story, we see that Mordecai is a Benjaminite, and he's called that. Mordecai the Benjaminite and his family lineage. And when we meet Haman, we discover his family as well. Haman the Agagite. Again, I explained that last week, but let it be known. The Agagites are ancient foes of the God of the Jews... And the people of that God. 
They are ancient foes, and for this reason, Mordecai cannot and will not bow to him. An ancient family enemy. It says in Esther chapter 3, just verses 5 and the second part of verse 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. I think we're going to learn a little bit more about this next week. Pastor Tyler's going to going to lead us, not for sure, but exactly, I'm thinking, um, but Haman just cannot stand, he's the second most powerful person in the whole world, and that's not good enough for him. One person that will, won't bow to him, he, he just goes off the chain, he's crazy. And it says in verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Mordecai's not enough. It's an inflammatory, narcissistic, and an egotistical response. And it says he wants to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, and this is where the rolling the dice comes in. In Esther chapter 3, Haman the Agagite spends several days and weeks rolling the dice. Why? Because he worships the god of fate and chance. To him, it's a divine crapshoot, a cosmic universe energy that he's going to roll the dice and seek the gods of nothing. He and his wise men, and they're looking for the right day to murder every single Jew on the face of the earth. He is the seed of the serpent. He is attempting to wipe out the seed of the woman that will come through the Jews, the Messiah, one day. He is the snake. He is an ancient Hitler, but he is a seed of Satan himself. After he gets his magical day, nine months in the future, remember the rolling of the dice. It's every decision is from the Lord. They have nine months after the law has been explained. And without knowing that Haman doesn't even know that the king's queen, Queen Esther, is Jewish. He sets a trap for the Jews that he and all the enemies of the Jews will actually fall into. Haman pitches the idea to King Ahasuerus. Without sharing the ethnicity of the people, he's, think, he's attempting to wipe out and destroy. He even promises 10,000 talents of silver. Now, last week I said, I'm not sure how much that is. I went and did the calculation. Um, this is actually a quarter of a billion dollars into the royal treasury. $260 million dollars. That he's promising, if you let me wipe these people out, I will pay you that sum of money. So it says in Esther 3.10, the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. That means you have permission to write this law however you want. The law is inscribed in a dozens of languages sent throughout the, the empire, 127 provinces. And when the Jews see the royal edict, they tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth, they roll around in ashes, and they cry and scream in the street. Word gets to Esther, he, she's in an insulated uh, castle, as it were. And the word is that your cousin, your, your uh, adopted father Mordecai is in pain and agony. And she attempts to send him clothing, he refuses. So she sends one of her servants, Hathak, to find out what's the meaning of this, Mordecai. And Mordecai talks to Hathak and says, uh, there's a date coming in the 12th month, the 13th day, when all of us Jews are going to be wiped from the, the face of the planet. 
unless you do something. He even sent the exact amount of silver that was promised and a copy of the royal edict. And he, he admonishes his adopted daughter. Please go into the king, reveal your Jewish identity, and plead for yours and the life of all of your kinsmen around the world. To which she responds, sending the message back to him, you know it's illegal to go to the king uninvited. Remember, Vashti didn't come when she was invited, and she was divorced and deposed. Now you want me to go in uninvited when there is an official law that if you do that, you will die unless the king decides in your favor. Well, this is like the the spiritual crux. We're going to come back to this in two weeks. This is the spiritual crux of the storyline when when Mordecai and, and Hadassah or Esther have to make up their mind whose side are they on. And we get to Esther chapter 4, verse 14, where Mordecai sends by message these words. If you keep silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will come from another place. He does believe, that's the most spiritual language you find in all of Esther. You don't hear the name God, but at least he believes something about God. That God is a covenant-keeping God. And he says, we have to be saved. He knew enough of the Jewish scriptures to know God's people would remain. But he says, as for you, if you don't do this, you and your father's house will perish. Meaning, uh, Esther, you and me, we're dead. And he goes on to say, and who knows, who knows, we don't know for sure, because from his perspective, God is silent and God is absent. But who knows, who knows that perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther calculates this and sends the message back um, in verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on, me, on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days. Neither will I and my, my maidens. Um, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Push come to shove, I'm going to do the right thing. Well, new part of the story, chapter 5. It says that on the third day, so after they've been, been fasting, and we think probably praying, though the writer of Esther la- leaves that out, I believe that's on purpose. But they're praying, Esther decides it's time. She puts on her royal ro- robes and just stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king is sitting on his royal throne opposite the entrance to the palace. So here's the scene. Um, She's not going right in. She is showing herself. Like this. Trying to do her best to be discreet, but be obvious. That makes sense. Why? Because she does not want to just boldly rush right in there. She recognizes how dangerous this is. And she understands she holds her life in her hand. But the king is delighted to see her. Remember, he hasn't invited her in for 30 days. This can be a very bad sign. But in fact, it turns out to be a very good thing. He actually misses her. Maybe he's just been very busy, but for 30 days. And when he sees her, he lowers his golden scepter, and she comes in and touches the tip. Her life is spared, but the story is not over yet. He says, what is your request? You wouldn't come here without something you want to ask 
up to half of my kingdom, and it shall be yours. And she says, how about you and Haman come to a feast that I prepared this afternoon? And he says, absolutely, get ready. And, and so they get ready, and they go to Esther's first feast. And it's during that feast that for a second time, King Ahasuerus says, what is your request or your desire? Up to half of my kingdom, and it is yours. And instead of making the request and blowing the plot wide open, she goes, here is my request, and if it please the king, that tomorrow, once again, you and Haman come to another banquet that I am planning for you. And we stop and we ask the question, what is behind this? Is she like sensing the moment? Is she getting cold feet? Is she reading what's going on? Um, we don't know. We're not told. But we do know this, that there are going to be some details that are going to fall into place in the next 24 hours. And though God seems silent, God seems distant, God seems even absent, he is not absent. Let's watch and see what happens in the next 24 hours. The first thing that happens is that Haman walks out of there puffed up so much. I and only I alone was invited to a very intimate banquet between a king and his queen. I am awesome. And then he encounters Mordecai. And his old trigger gets set off. He is madder than a hornet. And he goes home and he kind of stuffs that down and he gathers all his people in the household, his wife and his wise men and his children. And the scripture says, and I got to read this part because it's just over the top. It says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart when he saw Haman or Mordecai in the king's gate that neither arose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, stuff, sit down. Uh, Haman restrained himself and went home, sent out, brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had been advanced above the officials and all the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the the, with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited together with the king Yet all of this is worthless and nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And so his wife, Zeresh, says, well, why don't, why don't you just kill him? Why don't you build a gallow? And actually the word is a stake, 50 cubits high. That's a 75-foot telephone pole sharpened on the end. When we hear gallows in the book of Esther, it's not like, like old western movies and ropes. They shish people. This thing pleased Haman very much. And so he instructs the gallow to be con constructed. Now, here is, I said there's a spiritual turning point, and that's Esther's decision, if I perish, I perish. Here is the middle ground of the entire play where all of the energy begins to shift. Not exciting. It's like this brilliant playwright that God is orchestrating. History is his story. So here's Esther chapter 6 verse 1. Happening in between the two banquets right here in the middle. On that night the king could not sleep. That's one thing. Insomnia. 
Second thing, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Instead of other kinds of entertainment or things to make him tired or, or self-medicate, he says, read me something really boring. And of all the things that were, that were grabbed, that he could have, it could have been read to him, it says in verse 2, it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh. Last week I said, put a pin in it, we got to come back to it. This is five years later. It's forgotten, it's buried, it's in a library book on a shelf in a place where people don't go to read. Five years ago, this was written down. The Chronicles, and it was found written the, the, when he blew the, the plot wide open, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. A detail forgotten and buried in the story. And the king says, hey, what did we do to honor him? And the royal servant says, well, absolutely nothing. And that's not okay. And now it's morning, and uh, the king says, we got to fix that. Who's here in the palace? And guess who's the first one in the palace? I mean, detail, detail, detail in between these two feasts. And God, who seems to be silent and missing, actually orchestrating detail after detail after detail. The first person in the, in the palace is Haman the Agagite. And why is he there? Because the gallows are done. And he just wants to make sure he has final permission to assassinate Mordecai. At the same time, the king is geeking out over Mordecai and how he saved his life and how he never did anything to say thank you. They're thinking of the same person. And the king says to Haman, good morning, Haman. Hey, I got a question for you. What should be done for a man that the king desires to honor? You see it up there? Haman is so geeking out. Who else would the king want to honor but me? Oh my goodness, write my ticket. Oh, I've been thinking about this for years. Yeah, I'm the prime minister, but whoa, now I've got a blank check. And he begins to describe royal robes that the king's worn and a crown and put them on the king's best steed and have a servant lead him around the, the kingdom and say out loud to everyone, thus it shall be done to the one the king desires to honor. And the king goes, that's brilliant. Now go do that for Mordecai the Jew. Can you imagine the psychology of Haman and the emotional turbulence of heart? His face like a sheet. He has to do it. He, he was just going to say, can I assassinate? And he's 180 degree. It's got a genius. His timing and his ways are perfect. He does this all day long. And then he drops Mordecai back off at the king's gate. And he goes home with a hood over his head. And he gets home and his wife Zeresh and, and his wise men, what is wrong with you? And he goes, you won't believe just what happened. And they say to him, oh, that looks very bad. And can I tell you, Haman, actually, he really needs a getaway right now. Yeah, he needs to actually book his timeshare stay. He needs to use up his points. He needs to go away to a quiet place and have a sabbatical. Only problem is at that very moment, there's a knock on the door, and it's one of the king's messengers saying, Haman, it's time for the second banquet. And so Haman is led back to the palace to the second banquet 
verse 14 of chapter 6. And this is where, after the banquet, and you can imagine, Haman's probably not eating that much, is he? And this is where the king asks a third time, Esther, what's your request? What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. And this is the time where Esther goes, it's go time. Verses 3 through 6 of chapter 7, the queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me, granted me for my wish, and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would be silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Ahasuerus is so angry that he has to walk out on the balcony like, I cannot believe, he's probably feeling so stupid. He's been talked into a royal edict to, to massacre the Jews across 127 provinces in the empire. And he's so embarrassed and angry and furious. And while he's out on the balcony, Haman is like, oh no. And he throws himself on Esther's couch where she's sitting and starts to beg and plead. And it's just right on cue that King Ahasuerus walks in eyes wide open and jaw on the floor. It does not look good. And this is what he says in Esther 7, verse 8 through 10. Will he even assault my queen in my presence in my own house? Is he trying to molest my own queen after trying to murder her and all of her people? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. He's a dead man. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, and he actually knows the plot, he goes, moreover, king, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75-foot sharpened telephone pole. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And then I just got to dip into two verses of chapter 8, and then let's talk about this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. His whole estate goes to her. Moreover, Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Hey, by the way, this is my cousin, my adopted father. And, and the king goes, wow, nice to meet you. Thanks for sh saving my life. Um, and it says here that... Uh, he took off his signet ring, the one that he keeps giving to Haman to sign laws, and he gives it to Mordecai. He is now the prime minister. I want you to think about this for a moment. Two Jewish people in exile, destined to die. And at the flip of a switch, all the details that have been piling up over time come to fruition. And in a moment, these condemned people end up the wealthiest and most powerful in the Persian Empire. It's that fascinating and brilliant of how God's timing is perfect. He may seem silent, he may seem uh, absent, 
but God is working. And this is really our bottom line for our message today. Even when God seems silent or absent, he is present and working for his glory and our good. We have people that go, don't put yourself in there. You're not important. It's all about him. And God goes, oh, no, no. It's about my glory, and my glory has to do with you, too. God wanted to save Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews and the seed of the woman. Messiah would come through them, but he cared about individuals as well. So even when he seems silent and distant, he is present and working for his glory and our good. I'm going to do something in the spot because I'm watching time and we've got really cool stuff going on here. Um, communion in a moment. Uh, we're going to dedicate a family, a, a, a baby. I um, just, just want, want to share this with you. I went back through the story of Esther and then I cherry picked a few things in the story before the story. And what I found were 27 details. 27 details that hang together. You pull out one of those details and Jenga begins to fall. You follow the analogy? All the way back to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king that, that ransacked Judah and took Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and they wouldn't bow down. And at the end of that, he makes a royal edict. Edict says, anyone talk smack about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll rip you limb from limb. Cyrus, king of Persia, says, God called me to rebuild his temple. All you Jews, go back. Darius the Mede, the father of Ahasuerus, loved Daniel so much, he got tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. And after Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, he made a royal edict. And he said, uh, everyone is to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, the living God, the he endures forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And he sets Daniel up. And, and my point of the story before the story is this, that even before Esther takes place, God was already planting a pro-Jewish idea in the, the minds of the kings, of the, the rulers of the earth. God was setting them up for this moment. But then you go through the story, and there's 24 more fine-tuned details. I just don't have time to go through them. So I'm going to do this again. Hey, maybe we throw that on the website, because um, the list is magnificent, including the rolling of the dice for the exact day and month that Haman's looking for that day. That's an important day, because it gave the Jews time to prepare for those that were going to come against them so that they could defend themselves all the way down. And even when God seems silent or absent, he's present and working for his glory and our good. I wish I could share that list. It's just not, not time, so check back with us how we'll get that list out to you. But can I make a few uh, minor sub-point observations? Uh, I, I think you have uh, even some notes, some fill-in-the-blank and here's those fill-in-the-blanks. Subpoint number one, under our bottom line. I want us to understand this, that even small things and forgotten things are big and important things in God's story. Okay? Even small things and forgotten things. 
we understand God's sovereignty and big picture history, God wins in the end, and our hearts can even believe that. And that's, that's spoken so clearly in the scriptures, like in Daniel chapter 2, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We go, yeah, of course, big things, but I'm here to tell you, God works in the small things, in the insignificant things, in the obscure things, and the forgotten things. Things like uh, a murder plot. Now, that's kind of big, but it's forgotten for five years. If you were to look at the list and you were to count them up, you'd see a bunch of little details. That you take the detail out and the thing starts to collapse on itself. The details are important. And I'm going to encourage you quickly here, don't, don't in the moment try to make sense of every detail. You'll end up with some nonsensical interpretations of your life. Don't try to interpret until God makes it clear, and that might be judgment day. But I'm also here to tell you that those are not insignificant things. In fact, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that says for, for believers, for children of God, those who have, who have actually looked to Jesus and believed on Jesus, it says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How many things? Minus little things, right? Minus forgotten things? No, God works all things after the counsel of his will. It doesn't say that he causes them. We're not robots. This is not fate or chance. But God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So small things, forgotten things, things that you go, that was worthless, that was stupid. Why did that have to happen? I don't want bankruptcy. Why did that happen to me? God, are you there? Or things that you just missed, stupid things. God knows what he's up to. I think we're going to be blown away, maybe in this lifetime, maybe in eternity to look back and say, wow, I had no idea. But here's the second sub-point. Not only small things and forgotten things, but even bad things. Even bad things become good things. Think of all the bad things in the story of Esther. Haman's bad attitude, his hostility, his narcissism, his rage, his inflammatory response. Mordecai's not good enough. I need to massacre all of his people. Why? Because Mordecai wouldn't have done the trick. God had an agenda. There were enemies of the Jews all over the world. And God just wanted to flush them out. He had to have a psychopath that was inflammatory. Like, that's bad. That's evil. That's called sin. And you go, sin? Even sin? Yeah, even sin. Now watch this. You don't want to be that person. You don't, as a child of God or uh, uh, not a child of God, Haman was punished. If we do stuff and we sin, we get disciplined. That's not fun. But I'll tell you what, can't mess up God's plan, and he's a master at redemption. Have you sinned? Do you wonder if it messed up God's plan in the world or your life? You ever feel like, what if I messed up so bad I've been sidelined? Wonder if I've just put in the, been put in the minor leagues forever. No, God's bigger than that. 
even bad things become good things. Psalm 7610, man, write this down. This one's so powerful. It says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. You know what wrath is? It's a kind of sin. That God says, you rage as much as you want. Haman, Hitler, can't mess up my plan. It will, in the end, turn out to praise him. And with the remnant of it, he'll put it on like a belt. Even bad things become good things. All things are not good things. Sin is a very bad thing. It's actually contrary to him. However, however, God takes even those bad things and redeems them, transforms them, and uses them. That's how big God is. Romans 8, 28, you probably know this. It doesn't say all things are good things. There are really bad things, but listen to what he says. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes, we know that God causes or works all things together for good. That's how big and awesome he is. Do you believe that? Small things, forgotten things, even bad things. Because even when God seems like he is silent or absent, he is present and working for his glory and our good. This morning, we're going to take communion. Tyler, you ready? I think your microphone's over there. But can I just end this moment with this statement? For those who have responded to or will respond to God's invitation to come into relationship with him through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, all things work together for good. He may seem silent, even to the point of being absent, but he's right there, just off stage, orchestrating all things for his glory and our good. We celebrate that in the communion. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.